Okay, well, I'm excited to share this morning. So we are in Luke chapter 4. Usually I'd have Kelly do the scripture reading, but because he's not here, I'll do it today. And uh, I'm taking the text today from the ESV. So if you have your tablets or whatever and you want to switch over to another translation, you can do that. So this is going to be from the ESV. It's Luke 4, 14 to 21. Why don't we stand together for the reading of God's word? We show the word of God in honor. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And Lord, we do ask a blessing upon the preaching of your word today. May it come home to hearts with power in the way that you intend. Lord, each person is at a different place and you know the hearts. And so would you apply your word Make a difference in people's lives, whether that means coming to Christ for salvation or growing in Christ and maturing as a disciple of Jesus. May you do your work, O Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Last Sunday morning, in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, we were taking a look at the temptation of Jesus. And here we had that battle between Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and his arch enemy, Satan, the tempter. And this was a monumental battle. If you were here last week, you remember that our eternal destiny was hanging in the balance. Because if Jesus loses to Satan, that means that he becomes a sinner, and he can go to the cross, but he can't atone for our sins because he has sin of his own that he must atone for. So our eternal destiny was hanging in the balance as to whether Jesus would defeat Satan or whether he would fall to Satan. Now remember back in the Garden of Eden, there was another son of God named Adam. And Satan came to him and Satan sought to tempt Adam. The situation was a little bit different. Adam was in a paradise. Jesus is in a howling desolate wilderness. Adam had a full stomach. Jesus was starving to death. Adam was at his peak of strength. Jesus was completely weak and vulnerable. But where Adam fell, the very first temptation, Jesus Christ stood the test. He won. And then we have another son of God, Israel. Exodus 4.22 says that Israel is God's son. And there's parallels between what was happening there in the wilderness for 40 days and what was happening for 40 years with Israel during their wilderness march. And again, Satan came and tempted Israel with many temptations. 
to distrust God's love, to act independently of God, to worship other things besides God, to test the Lord their God. And Israel failed, but Jesus Christ stood firm. So the first son of God gave in to temptation. The second son of God, Israel, gave in to temptation. The third son, Jesus Christ, was different from all the rest. He stood. He stood the test. He passed. He succeeded. He was like the, the David of the Old Testament going up against Goliath. And remember that if Goliath won against David, all of the Israelites were going to become slaves to the Philistines. Goliath was a representative. Jesus was a representative. And that's exactly the same way it is with our salvation. It's not like God looks at each individual person and what they do personally merits their salvation. No, he looks through a representative. Either Jesus has obtained salvation for you or Adam has obtained damnation for you. Either you are in Christ today or you are in Adam. So having come through successfully and conquered the enemy, verse 14 says that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. Now we would not necessarily pick up on this but there is a one year gap of time between verse 13 and verse 14 if you have a harmony of the gospels you'll find out that john chapters 2 3 4 and 5 all fit between luke 4 13 and luke 4 14 and that's going to help this to make a little bit of sense because it says when he came back there was a report about him spreading through all the surrounding country well, the, the report began to circulate when he was down in Jerusalem. Okay, let me just recount some of the things that have been going on during that year period of time. Jesus has been up in Cana of Galilee, and he turns water into wine. Then he travels down to Jerusalem, and he cleanses the temple. Then he has a discussion with Nicodemus about the new birth. Then he witnesses to that Samaritan woman at the well. And she, as well as many other Samaritans, come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then, in John chapter 5, he heals a lame man who had not walked for 38 years. So all of these things have been preceding his return back into Galilee. So now he's returning, it says, in the power of the Spirit. What that means is that miracle-working power was flowing through his life wherever he went. And he's coming back north into the region of Galilee. See, Galilee is a region kind of like Sacramento County is a region. Within Sacramento County, you've got all kinds of cities, don't you? Rancho Cordova, Citrus Heights, Fair Oaks, Orangevale, Elk Grove. You've got all these cities within Sacramento County. Well, Galilee was like a county. Within that county was all of these towns and villages like Cana and Nazareth and um, Capernaum. So Jesus comes back to this region of Galilee there's a report about him that's spreading like wildfire because these miracles have been taking place and people are buzzing with the news and they're passing it from one village and town to the next. And verse 15 says that he was teaching in their synagogues as he's going through the little villages and towns of Galilee. And what was the initial reaction when he was teaching in their synagogues? It says he was being glorified by all. This was the honeymoon period. Everyone loved Jesus at the beginning. They loved the fact that he could heal, he could do miracles, and when they listened to him teach in the synagogues, they were blown away. 
In John 7, it says, Never did any man speak the way this man speaks. His teaching was different from the scribes and the Pharisees, who loved to quote Rabbi so-and-so as their authority. Jesus came on the scene, and he was the authority. Didn't have to quote anybody. Jesus brought the good news of the kingdom. So he's being glorified by all. And then verse 16 says, He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. Now remember Jesus' life up to this point. What city is he born in? Bethlehem, right. After a couple of years, his family exits and they go to Egypt because Joseph has a dream that there's someone trying to kill his son. So he takes off and they, they spend some time in Egypt and then they return back to Nazareth and Jesus ends up growing up in Nazareth. It's his hometown. And so up until he's about 30 years old, he's living in Nazareth he's learning the trade of his father. He becomes a carpenter. So when he comes to the synagogue in Nazareth, who's going to be there in that synagogue? Strangers? No. They all know him. They know who he is. He's the hometown boy. The hometown boy that made good, that became famous. And he's coming back to his hometown. And his fame has preceded him. And so he comes to his hometown, and there are his neighbors there in the synagogue. All of his relatives are there. Even his customers, where he'd built a table for this elderly Jewish man and maybe some chairs for this family over here, his customers would, would be there. And it's filled to the brim with people who knew his life. And it says, as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Now that's an interesting little note that we need to take notice of. Why did Jesus go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day? It was his custom. It says, as was his custom. What's a custom? It's a regular practice. <clears throat> it's what you consistently do. You make it a regular, consistent, determined part of your life. Now, if there was anybody that didn't need to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, I would assume that person would be Jesus Christ, the Son of God. How much do you suppose Jesus was learning from the people that got up and expounded the scriptures. Not a whole lot, I would assume. Jesus is the one that was the author of the scriptures. He knows the word of God backwards and forwards. It's his book. So he doesn't really need to be there on the Sabbath day, but he knows that it's the right thing to do. And I believe he's setting for us a precious example. Sometimes you hear people say, well, you know, I can worship God out on the golf course. I can worship God better out in nature, out at the lake or up in the mountains. And that's, that's true. It's fine, well, and good for us to worship God everywhere. But I think it would be good for us to take an example from Jesus Christ to make it the determined, regular, consistent custom of our lives to meet weekly with the saints of God in church to hear the word of God expounded. If Jesus thought it necessary to set an example in this way, surely we should follow his example. And it says in verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. Now, we need to know a little bit about the order of a synagogue service. <coughs> there was a temple in Jerusalem at this time, but there were also synagogues sprinkled throughout all the towns and villages where the Jews resided. And the synagogue was the place of instruction. 
The temple was the place of sacrifice and the place of worship. The synagogue was more the place to expound the law and the prophets. So the synagogue service would open up with the singing of psalms to worship God. And then there was the reciting of the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with soul and with all your mind. And after that, there would be the prayers that would be addressed to God for all the people. And then there would be a reading from the prophets, and there would be a reading from the law, and then there would be someone within that congregation who would stand and come forward and then would expound and instruct based on the reading from the law or the prophets on that day. And following that, there would be a benediction. So the synagogue service was not that much different from one of our church services today. There's the teaching of the word, there's the singing of songs of praise to God, there's prayers that take place. All of that would be very similar. One thing that was interesting about the synagogue service is that they had an open service, which meant that any adult male who is qualified could get up during the service and read scripture or expound upon scripture. Remember how Paul and Barnabas would go from city to city in the book of Acts, and wherever they were in the synagogue on that Sabbath day, they would just stand up and they would give a word of instruction or a word of exhortation to the people. That's because the synagogue was open. There was an open format for any male to participate. So Jesus takes advantage of that particular opportunity for him, and the Bible says that he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. If you have a New American Standard, it says the book. But they didn't have books back then. They had scrolls. They had a real long scroll <laughs> because Isaiah is a long book. And it had these two wooden scrollers. You know, you'd open it like this. And so Jesus was unraveling that scroll. And he had to un unravel it a long ways because Isaiah 61 is right towards the end. And he's looking for a definite, specific part of Scripture. Notice that. He found the place where it was said. So he's not reading at random. There's something on his mind and on his heart that he wants to read. And so he goes all the way to the end of that scroll, and he found the place where it was written. And I'm going to pass over that because we're going to come back to that in a minute. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. So this was the custom. You would stand up to read, just like we did earlier today in our service. But then whoever was teaching would sit down. The teacher would take a seated position to instruct the people there in the synagogue. So Jesus now is sitting down. And it says, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. So you could hear a pin drop. The atmosphere is charged. People have this high expectancy. They're waiting to hear what their hometown boy is going to say. They've heard the news about him. It's been spreading like wildfire. This man does miracles. He can heal the sick. He can change water into wine. And he's been coming back through the various towns and villages of Galilee, teaching in the synagogue, and he's being praised by everybody. And so when he comes to Nazareth, his hometown, the whole city turns out. Standing room only. And when he gets done reading and he sits down, the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, waiting to hear what he would say about the scripture that he just read. And this is what Jesus says. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what is he really saying? 
If you take a look at verse 18, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Now, does anybody know what the word Messiah means? It means anointed one. Messiah or Christ is the anointed one. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. By him saying that, he was saying, I am your Messiah. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am your Messiah. You see, all of the people who had stood up to read the prophets and the law and then expound on them up until this point, they were saying, Messiah is coming. They would read Isaiah 61 and they would say, he's going to come, but you have to wait. Be patient. Your deliverer is coming. Jesus stands up and says, no, you don't have to wait any longer. I am here. Messiah has come. Now you say, well, this is a super short sermon. Right? Verse 18, verse 19, and then verse 21. Today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's a really short sermon. Well, no, not exactly. Because if you look at verse 21, it says, He began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Do you catch the nuance? These are not the only words he spoke. L Luke is simply summing up He's giving a summary statement, as he does in the book of Acts when he records sermons. He's not recording every word Jesus spoke, but he's giving a summation of what Jesus said. So he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. So he was speaking more gracious words than what he had just spoke. He expounded. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. No doubt he opened up the text and told them what it meant for them to be poor and captive and blind and oppressed. And he applied the whole thing to himself as the great deliverer who could heal and save people in that condition. Now, as I was preparing for this sermon, as does happen from time to time, I had an idea of what I thought the text meant, and I had a direction that I wanted to go in. In fact, I had this sermon already prepared in my mind. And as happens from time to time, I began to study the text more and more, and the longer I studied it, the less comfortable I became with my first interpretation. This was my first interpretation of the passage. I believe Jesus was saying something like this. I am the one who's going to come to preach the gospel, heal the sick, and deliver people from Satan's clutches, cast out demons. And I had this great sermon all prepared in my mind because I was going to apply that to the church and say, you know, our ministry needs to look like Jesus' ministry. So we should be preaching the gospel, healing the sick, and casting out demons. And whereas I don't necessarily believe that's, that's an, an untrue statement, I believe that's true, I just don't think it's what is being taught in this passage. And let me tell you, tell you why I come to that particular interpretation. First of all, when Jesus talks about poor, captives, blind, and oppressed, is he talking about physical poor, captives, blind, and oppressed, or spiritual poor, captives, blind, and oppressed? I believe it's spiritual. And the reason I came to that conviction is because he said he came to set the captives free, release the captives, we have no account in any of the Gospels of Jesus releasing a physical captive, a physical prisoner from any prison 
or from any enslavement. The closest we have to anybody who's a prisoner in the Gospels is John the Baptist. And Jesus didn't set him free. John stayed in prison and he was actually finally executed. So he wasn't talking about physical captives. And if he's not talking about physical captives, he's probably not talking about physical poor, physical blind, and physically oppressed people. And then the other thing that came to my mind is I took a look at the words that are used here in verse 18 and 19. Notice the emphasis on the word proclaim. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and implied is proclaim recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the Lord's favor. So he's coming to proclaim these things. He's coming to proclaim that there's good news for spiritually poor people. He's coming to proclaim that there is freedom for those who are spiritually captive. He's coming to proclaim that there is healing, there is sight for those who are spiritually blind. He's coming to proclaim that he is introducing the year of the Lord's favor. So I had to completely change the sermon to reflect what I believed was the more accurate understanding of the text. And so this morning we're going to be looking at four different pictures of a lost person, an unsaved person, a non-Christian, someone who's outside of Christ, okay? Not someone who says they're a Christian but are not, because many people do that. Um, we're talking about someone who, who is not yet saved, not yet regenerate. And here we have four pictures. We've got a picture of a beggar man, a picture of a bound man, a picture of a blind man, and a picture of a broken man. And I believe that there are just four different pictures of the same individual, the lost person. He's poor, he's captive, he's blind, and he's oppressed. And the need that the lost person has is salvation from sin. Because sin will impoverish him. Sin will enslave him. Sin will blind him. And sin will oppress him. And Jesus came to set the captive free. Freedom from sin and the consequences of sin. So let's take a look at those four pictures. First of all, the beggar man. We're told here, in verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And that word poor in Greek is an interesting word. In Greek, there are two different words for poor. There's the word for the person who possesses very little. That's the general word that's used for a poor person. But that's not the word used here. The word used here is the word for the person who doesn't possess little. He possesses nothing. He's absolutely destitute. In fact, the word literally, when you go back to its root, it has the meaning of to cringe or to shrink back or to cower. So this is the picture of the man in the shadows cringing back, one hand covering his face for shame and the other hand open trying to receive a few pennies that will help him to survive that day. He's a beggar, a destitute, impoverished beggar who has nothing at all in this world. Perhaps he had been injured and so he can't work. Perhaps it's a woman who is a widow 
and she has no way to make a living. And so the only way she can survive from day to day is just to reach out a hand and ask for a few pennies to buy some bread to get by for that day. That's the word that is used here. Jesus came to proclaim good news to people like that, to the beggar man. Do you remember in Luke 16 when Jesus tells that story about the rich man and Lazarus? And he describes Lazarus as being poor, who is begging just to have a few crumbs off of the rich man's table. That's the word that's used there. It's the same word in both places. It's the beggar who's just begging for crumbs just to get by. Now this is what the unsaved person is really like in the sight of God. Now he doesn't think that about himself. He thinks he's fine. In fact, when... You go to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 17. This is what the church of Laodicea was saying about themselves. I am rich. I've become wealthy. I have need of nothing. And Jesus says, and you don't know that you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. Buy from me and I'll give you gold, he says. I'll give you these garments that will cover your nakedness. So the lost man normally thinks that he's fine. He thinks he's a good person. He thinks he's going to be A-OK -okay on Judgment Day. He's got an in with the man upstairs. You know, everything's cool. <laughs> the problem is that he's going to be woefully woken up on Judgment Day because he's going to hear those terrifying words, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. It's not that he knew them at one time and then he's going to cast them away. No, he never knew them. Never had a saving relationship with them. So this is the lost man. He has nothing to commend him to God. Nothing. He has no righteousness of his own. In fact, whatever righteousness he possesses are what? what are they, how are they described in Isaiah 64? Filthy garments. The Lord looks down on that righteousness and he says, that is filthy. I've, I've got to get that off you and I've got to give you some clean garments of righteousness. The garments of my own son. So he has nothing to commend himself to God. He's got no righteousness of his own. And so he must come empty-handed as a beggar if he will ever receive salvation. People naturally are too proud to come empty-handed, aren't they? They want to buy their salvation. And so they'll come saying, Lord, surely you'll accept me. Look at all my religious performances. Lord, I go to church. Lord, I've even ta taught in the Sunday school. I take communion. I even read my Bible from time to time. As though somehow that righteousness could commend us to God. No, you got to come like that cringing beggar with one hand over your face because you're ashamed of your guilt in the sight of God. And you reach out a hand and say, Lord, have mercy on my soul. I've got nothing to give you. I need what you have to give to me, which is salvation from my sin. Now, how does Jesus respond? It says he came to do what? To preach good news to the poor. Good news. That's just another word for gospel. I came to preach the gospel to the poor. Now, what would be good news to a poor person like that? You guys know the answer. It's that somebody has come to make you rich. If a person has nothing and is begging just to survive from day to day and somebody walks up to him and says, 
This is your lucky day, fellow. I'm a multi-trillionaire. <laughs> and I've got so much money, I don't know what to do with it. And I want to give a lot of it to you. I want to fill up your bank account so you'll never have a need again. That would be good news to a fellow like that. That's exactly what takes place when we come into the kingdom. We have got empty bank accounts, don't we? In fact, they're worse than empty. We've got debt in there. Debt so high that we can never pay it back. But there's an infinitely rich Savior. His name is Jesus. And he comes to fill up every bank account to the brim so you'll never have a need again. He's infinitely rich in mercy and in grace. He's a perfect Savior. Augustus Toplady, a man who lived in the 1700s, wrote that famous hymn, Rock of Ages, and he knew what we're talking about this morning. In that hymn are the words, Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. He knew exactly what it meant to be poor in spirit. It, it doesn't mean just to have enough money so that you've got to live in an apartment or even a shack. It means you don't have a house. You don't have food for the day. You've got rags, and that's all you've got to live on. You, that's it. You don't have anything. There's no insurance. If you're living today, you wouldn't have a TV. You wouldn't have an iPhone. You, you wouldn't have anything. You'd be out on the streets begging just to survive from day to day. And that's the man that Jesus comes to enrich. The man who will admit that about himself, confess that to the Lord, and freely and gratefully receive the abundant riches that Jesus alone can supply. In the gold rush days, oftentimes thieves would break into someone's little shanty and they would find their sacks of gold, the gold dust, and they would pour it out and fill it up with sand. And they would take the gold dust with them, but leave their bags filled with sand. And so when that person picked up his bag, he said, oh, good, my gold dust is still there, still feels heavy. But when he poured it out to turn it in for money later on, he'd find out that he had been ripped off that what he had was worthless. And you know, sin does that to us. Sin robs us of the true riches and makes us convinced that we already have something that's really valuable. But on Judgment Day, when what we have is poured out, we're going to find out that sin has destroyed us. Unless we wake up before it's too late. Unless the Spirit of God takes the blinders off and we see our spiritual poverty and cry to Him for mercy as a beggar would. So he's a beggar man. The second picture, he's a bound man. Because Jesus said that he came to release the captives, to proclaim release to captives. So this captive would be either the prisoner. You can have a person who's in prison waiting to be executed. He's on death row. Or it could be the picture of the person who's been caught in war. And so he's been taken captive in war. He's been made a prisoner. Either one, this is a person who is bound. He's lost his freedom. He can't just decide he's going to get up and do whatever he wants and go here or go there. He's lost his freedom. He's bound and he's enslaved. 
And that's the picture. Jesus said in John 8.34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. So what is he saying? Sinners are slaves. Sinners are captives. Sinners can't free themselves. They're bound to sin. Or Romans 6.17, Paul says this, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, now we'll just stop right there. Don't miss what he just said. You were slaves of sin. Christians were slaves of sin. What does that tell us about non-Christians today? They're slaves of sin. Unless Christ has redeemed you, you are a slave of sin. You are a captive. You're bound. And a slave does not have the ability to simply free himself. Someone stronger than he, someone wealthier than he, must come and buy him out of slavery. He can't just walk away. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So you're either a slave of righteousness as a Christian, or you're a slave of sin as a lost person. Titus 3.3, here he's, Paul's describing the lost, or the, the Christian as he was before he became a Christian. He says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Paul describes the life of the non-Christian as someone who is enslaved to lusts and pleasures. They're captives. Or in 2 Timothy 2.26, Paul says, We were held captive by the devil to do his will. Now I know people love to talk about the free will of the sinner, but according to the Apostle Paul, he's held captive by the devil to do the devil's will. Now he's got a lot of freedom to do this sin or to do that sin or the other sin, but he doesn't have the freedom to regenerate his own soul or to break free from Satan's tyranny or to become righteous. He is a slave to sin and must be redeemed by someone stronger, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. And people today are slaves to all kinds of things, aren't they? It might be drugs, it might be alcohol, it might be cigarettes, my previous employee was telling me that he had been a heroin addict for years. He's been clean and sober now for two and a half years. But he said for years he was a heroin addict. And he said it was more difficult for him to try to give up cigarettes than it was to give up heroin. Cigarettes are enslaving. It could be that someone is enslaved to coffee or caffeine, power drinks. They can enslave. Pornography is enslaving. Sometimes prescription pills that you buy legally over the counter can be enslaving. There's all kinds of substances and things that enslave us, and sin does the same thing. Sin takes you deeper and deeper and deeper where you become more and more wrapped up by them and harder and harder to free yourself from it. Jesus can set free the captive. That's the point. He's the Messiah who has the ability to free us from all these things. Notice what Jesus says. He says in verse 18, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. So if you find yourself a captive to something today, 
You need to begin to believe that Jesus Christ can and desires to set you free from that thing. And we need to trust him to do that work. I'm not telling you today to break the chains off yourself. I'm telling you to look to the one who will and can and desires to do that in your life. He can set the captive free. It can also be things that are inward, not just the outward. It can be things like pride or jealousy or bitterness or resentment or the need for constant approval. To some people, that's an enslaving thing. They find themselves unable to really make good decisions because they're always worried about what someone's going to think about them. The need for approval, the fear of rejection, all of these things can be enslaving. But Jesus Christ can release us. He can set us free. Now, the third picture is the picture of a blind man. And again, I don't think Jesus primarily is talking about physically blind people. Although he did heal some blind people during his ministry, didn't he? He has the power to do that as well. But primarily, it's talking here about spiritual blindness. Do you remember a few weeks back when we were in Luke chapter 1, Zacharias, who is the father of John the Baptist, gives a prophecy at the last portion there of Luke chapter 1. In verse 78 and 79, this is what he says. The sunrise from on high shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Isn't that a just a fascinating statement? The sunrise from on high is going to visit us. He's going to visit those who sit in darkness. And then Matthew 4.16 says, The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. When I was a kid, sometimes we'd go to the movies, and we'd come out of the movies about 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and it was really sunny because it was the summertime, and boy, we had such a hard time getting adjusted to that light. It was like blinding to come out of that darkened room. Well, imagine sitting in a closet where it's pitch black, and then all of a sudden, someone flips on the light after you've been there about an hour and your eyes are adjusted to the darkness. It's just crazy. That's what it must have been like for the people living during Jesus' ministry. It says those who were sitting in darkness, all of a sudden, they saw great light because the light of the world, Jesus Christ, came into their existence. He came across their paths. In fact, Jesus said of himself, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, people are spiritually blind, as well as being spiritually paupers and spiritual captives. And they're blind in three different ways, according to Scripture. They're born naturally blind. By nature. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. How come? Because they're foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Now, do you know what it means to appraise something? If you have a house and you want to get an appraisal on your house, what does that guy do? He tells you what it's worth, what its value is. It says, this natural man, that means the unsaved man, he doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. He doesn't understand them. Why? Because he doesn't value them. He doesn't know their worth. That's why he thinks they're foolish. 
If you don't think the things of Jesus Christ are foolish, but instead if you think they're precious, it's because the Spirit of God has done something internally to regenerate this old dead heart and make it alive. Otherwise, you'd never see it. He flipped the switch for you. You were in that closet, and he came in and flipped the switch, and the lights came on. And we don't have the ability to flip that switch, but Jesus does. He has the power to enrich paupers, set free captives, but he also has the power to give recovery of sight to spiritually blind people who can't see the glory of God. They can't value it. They don't see it. We are blind by nature, according to 1 Corinthians 2.14. We're born into this world spiritually blind. The second way we're blind is that we are blind by Satan's work. Because Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.4 that the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light of the what? The glory of Jesus Christ. Now, unsaved people can see Jesus Christ. I mean, they come to church, they hear about him, no problem. But they can't see his glory. That's the difference. And they'll never see his glory until the Spirit of God enables them to do that. They'll think it's foolish. They'll think it's foolish to give so much of your time and your energy and your money and your gifts and to give all of that over to serving God. That's just foolish. You need to get to have some fun. You need to live for yourself. You know, go out and enjoy life. Well, we are enjoying life, aren't we? The regenerate person finds the greatest joy and satisfaction and happiness that he could ever find in the service of Jesus Christ. But it's foolishness to the person that doesn't have spiritual eyes to see it. So by nature, he's blind. And then the God of this world, Satan, comes along. And he blinds him even further. And then there's a third blinding in Scripture. And you may not guess who that is. It's not your own nature. It's not Satan. It's God himself. The Bible teaches that God himself blinds the minds of unregenerate people. John chapter 12, verse 40 he, referring back to God, has blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Jesus said in John chapter 3 that the, the unsaved person hates the light and he will not come to the light lest his deeds be reproved. And so God will bring judicial blindness on those people who hate the light and will not come. At some point he brings even a greater degree of judicial blindness upon them, and they go off and they die in their sin and they're lost because they will not repent when the offer of mercy is presented to them. So we, before our conversion, are spiritually blind people. And what does Jesus do? He proclaims recovery of sight to spiritually blind people. He says to spiritually blind people, I can make you see. Would you like to see? Would you like to see my glory? Let me take the blinders off for you. In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, it says, For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, there's that word glory again, in the face of Christ. So if anybody comes to the the place where they can see, really see, 
Well, we know who to thank for that. The Bible says it was God who shone in their hearts. They didn't just decide one day, I think I'll see. God gave them the ability to see. Ephesians 5.8 says, You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. That's our description. We were formerly darkness. Now we are light. And so when we are saved, Jesus Christ flips a switch, the light comes on. We start to appraise Him as being infinitely valuable, more precious than anything in this world. In fact, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it says that to the called, He becomes the wisdom and the power of God. Now before that, He was foolishness to them. When God calls them, everything's changed, isn't it? Instead of being foolish, he's wisdom. Instead of being foolish, he's the power of God. And you can tell whether you've become a Christian by whether you have gone from a place where these things were foolish and you just neglected them because they weren't very important to you. You didn't, you didn't see the importance or the glory to where you see Christ as the most important, precious person in this world and you're willing to follow him and do anything he calls you to do. When that happens, you know you've been born again. Because the Spirit has done that work in your soul. The fourth picture here is the broken man. The broken man. The word is used here is oppressed. He will set free those who are oppressed. And the word oppressed refers to someone who's downtrodden. Or someone who has been crushed. Or someone who has been broken by calamity. It's the person who is overwhelmed by the pressures and the troubles and the pain that accompany life in this world. So they're just broken down, they're burdened, they're oppressed, they're crushed. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. There's the picture. The heavy laden person. Sometimes people are heavy laden because they have the weight of God's law on them. And they're trying to fulfill it in order to be acceptable to God. And that is a crushing weight. Do you remember what Peter said in the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15? He says, neither we nor our forefathers were able to bear the yoke of the law. It was a crushing weight. It just burdens a person. Jesus Christ comes and he takes that weight off. He puts it on himself because he fulfills the law. He doesn't expect us to be able to perfectly fulfill His law. No human being ever will, apart from Jesus Christ. He has fulfilled it for us. So through faith in Him, His law-keeping is now put to the account of everyone who trusts Him. We are justified. We are declared righteous in the sight of God. His perfect life is put to our account, and our ugly sins are put to His account. And there's this great exchange that takes place. So that's what this oppression is talking about. Now, why are people oppressed? Why does that happen to people where they are just crushed underneath the troubles? It's because of sin. Their own sin and the sin that's in the world. I mean, look at people around you that you would, you would categorize them as heavy laden. Crushed, downtrodden, broken, afflicted. It's because of either some sin in their own life that has brought that trouble upon them, 
or by the sin in the lives of people around them that has manipulated circumstances to take advantage of them, it's because of sin. Each one of these four categories results from sin. Jesus, because he came to save sinners from their sin, can reverse the curse. Instead of being oppressed, we can be released from that oppression. We can have it lifted. And if you feel like you're one of those people this morning that is oppressed, I pray that the Spirit of God would give you faith right now to look to Christ. Don't look within. There is nothing inside of you that will ever release you from oppression. Look to Jesus. Look away from yourself to Jesus Christ, the risen and ascended and exalted Lord at the right hand of God who has all authority in heaven and on earth and can do anything he so chooses and so pleases to do. He can release you this morning from that oppression. So Jesus' response, according to verse 18, he sets at liberty those who are oppressed. He fulfills the law. He bears our sin. He releases us from the oppressive weight of sin. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. Folks, that's what we need. <laughs> and we have it. If we're not enjoying it, it's not because it's not available. It's because we're not trusting him for the rest that he's already provided through his finished work on the cross. If you're running a, a treadmill like a hamster, trying to think, if I just do enough, God will finally accept me, you're not resting. You're neglecting what Christ did at the cross. You're, you're setting that aside and you're looking to yourself. And God wants you to repent of looking at yourself and he wants you to just to fall in love with Jesus and find him your all vision, the vision that enthralls your soul. So he came to release, to set at liberty those who were oppressed. Four pictures of the unsaved person. He's a beggar man, he's a bound man, he's a blind man, and he's a broken man. Now let's draw it down. What does that mean for us? What kind of application would the Holy Spirit want us to draw from this text today? And I want to speak to two groups. First of all, that person who is not yet a Christian. Now, they might think they are. Most people do in America. They think they're Christians, but they're not. I want to speak to that person. Verse 19 says that Jesus came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, most, almost all scholars that I consulted believe that this year of the Lord's favor, Jesus is referring back to a particular year that the Jews would understand. Can you think back to the Old Testament? What Was there a year in the Old Testament that was a year of great blessing and favor upon the entire nation? It's called the year of Jubilee. You familiar with that? Every 50 years, if you had to sell yourself into slavery as an indentured servant because you had these debts that you couldn't pay, on the 50th year, you got set free. So debts were canceled. Slaves were released and set free. And if you had to mortgage your home or your property or your land, it was returned to you. Jesus is saying here, when Messiah comes, it's going to be a year of Jubilee. Your sin will be canceled. Paradise lost will be restored. 
If you've been enslaved to sin or the law, you are going to be released from that because Messiah will come to deliver and set free and bring in this year of Jubilee. Now, notice it's a year. It's a year of Jubilee. If we went back to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, and you can do that if you want to, what you're going to find is that without even a comma, the sentence isn't even done. Jesus stops reading before the sentence is even completed. The very next phrase is, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus didn't read that part, even though it's part of the very same sentence. He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He didn't come to proclaim the day of the Lord's vengeance. Why not? Because he didn't come to judge the world, he came to save it. In his first coming, he comes to be the savior of sinners. But folks, there's coming another day when he's coming back. None of us knows when that day is. It could be today. It could be 10,000 years from now. I don't know. Nobody knows. But he's coming back. And when he comes back, it's going to be a day of vengeance. Notice the difference between a year and a day. This is the year of the Lord's favor versus a day of vengeance. You see, from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, he has introduced the year of Jubilee. This long, indefinite period of time that is filled with the grace of God. We call it the age of grace, where grace is available. You can be reconciled to God. It's possible. There's coming a day when that will no longer be possible, but right now, this is the year of Jubilee. If you're a slave, you can be freed. If you've got a huge debt of sin, it can be canceled. Because Jesus the Messiah has come to introduce the year of Jubilee. But what does a person have to do in order to receive those blessings? He has to admit that he's a, a beggar. That he doesn't have anything to offer God to buy his salvation. He doesn't have two pennies to rub between his fingers. He's got nothing. He's got to reach out his hand and take, receive, He's got to admit, Lord, I've got no righteousness of my own. He's also got to see himself as someone captive. That he's a slave to sin. That he's not a free man. He's also a man who is blind. He's also a man who's oppressed. He's got to come to admitting his fallenness and his shame and his guilt and freely receiving the benefits of salvation. So my encouragement, if you're not a Christian, if you're not in Christ today, admit before God who you are, exactly who you are. You are in Adam. You're a mere man fallen. You're in desperate need of sovereign grace. And you will die and perish in hell forever unless God saves you. You, gotta, you have to come that way, penniless as a beggar. But if you will not do that, the Bible says there is a day of vengeance coming. A short period of time. I believe this is the day of judgment. 2 Thessalonians 1 says that when Jesus comes the second time, he's going to come in flaming fire with his holy angels, dealing out what? Vengeance 
to a particular group of people, to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, lost people. They don't obey the gospel. They don't know God. Jesus is coming back in vengeance. So, oh, my, my encouragement to you is if you do not know that you have peace with God, that you've settled things with, with you and God, if you've never received the new heart, the new life from the Spirit, this morning, come as a beggar to Him. Fall down on your face before Jesus Christ. Admit who you are and receive through faith the salvation that He freely offers so that you don't have to face the vengeance of our God that will come to pass one day. Now, if you are a Christian, there's a different message that the Holy Spirit would apply to you, I believe. Well, number one is simple. Be grateful <laughs> that your bank account's filled with spiritual riches, that He's given you sight, that you're no longer bound to sin, no longer a captive, and that, that oppression is driving you into the grave, that He's released you from those horrible, horrible things. But, but another aspect of this, Jesus' ministry is our ministry. Jesus says in John 20, verse 21, to His apostles after He rose from the dead, As the Father has sent Me, I also send you. He's making a, a comparison. As the Father sent Me, so also I send you. There's a similarity between Jesus coming, being sent by the Father, and us going, being sent by Jesus. Jesus came from heaven, sent by the Father on an errand of mercy to save sinners. Then he commissions his church and sends them out and says, go. He sends them out on an errand of mercy to bring salvation to sinners. So I believe we can apply the text from Isaiah 61.1 to ourselves. Not just to Jesus. Because we are the church, the body of Christ. He's the head, but the body is the visible expression of the head. The church is to express Jesus Christ here on earth. We are to go forth into the world as He would go into the world if He were here in the flesh. And so when it says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, let's just apply that to ourselves. The Spirit of the Lord is upon His church, His body, us. Because He has anointed us to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent us to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So, when the Lord sends us out to preach or to witness at the light rail or to knock on doors or to talk to someone that you work with or go to school with, or to have a neighbor over for dinner and to share the love of Christ with them, what we need to remember is that we will only be able to have an effective ministry to that person if the Spirit of the Lord is upon us and we have His anointing. We can preach the gospel 24 hours a day, seven days a week for the rest of our life and never see a single convert if the Spirit of God does not join with those words. So we need to cry out that God would give us an anointing of the Spirit. Before we go out to preach, we need to pray and pray sincerely. Heartfelt prayers. Give me the power of your Spirit, O Lord. Remember Luke 11, verse 13? If you then, being evil, 
know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So we need to ask, Lord, I need more of your Spirit right now. Because I don't have the power to convert a single a flea. <laughs> I, can't, I can't do a single thing without your Spirit, Lord. Give me your Spirit just like you gave your Spirit to Jesus so that He was anointed and empowered to do His ministry. God has called us to make disciples. That's our marching orders. That's what he left us to do. If we're not doing that, we are failing, church. Hear that? We can teach Sunday school. We can have great fellowship. We can worship. Folks, if we're not making disciples, we have no reason to exist. Because that's what he told us to do before he went back to heaven. And that's why we talk so much about that here at the bridge. Let's fold up shop and go home and go to another church that's going to make disciples if we're not serious about doing that. That's what he's called us to do. That's why we're here. Otherwise, we'd be in heaven right now. He'd zap us up. We're here because, and that's why yesterday there was a group of people from this church out of the light rail preaching the gospel in the open air. It's in obedience to the command of Jesus Christ, the head of the church, the Lord of the church. And if you can't muster up the courage to do that, you've got to muster up the courage to do something, folks. If you sit at home doing nothing in terms of effort to make disciples day after day, month after month, year after year, you show up in heaven, it's going to be a shameful way to appear before Christ when he told you what to do and you just disobeyed, <laughs> deliberately disobeyed. So let's obey. But the only way we're going to be effective is with the Spirit. So let's cry for the power of the Spirit. Amen? Amen. Lord, we do ask for you to stir our hearts with a deep desire, Lord, to be obedient to Jesus Christ, the head of his church. And we do ask for the power of your Spirit, Lord, to accompany the Word of God. Lord, I pray for each one here. Each one of these people here are going to be in contact with other people this week, lost people. Lord, would you just put on their hearts such a yearning to win souls, such a yearning to bring Jesus Christ to lost people, that they're willing to risk rejection, willing to risk disapproval by somebody else, and that they would open their mouths and speak of the glories of poor people being made rich and blind people being healed. Lord, why, why is it that we are so reticent to tell people how, how, how blessed their life can be? I mean, it seems like we want to do that. Oh, Father, overcome our natural resistance and send us forth. Send us forth to make disciples this week. By the power of your Spirit. And we pray in Jesus' holy, precious name. Amen. Amen.